standard issue for all women. Hi there and welcome to The Sunday Chops. It's me, Jen, in case you can't recognise my voice by now. This week we've got the full recording of mine and Mickey's chat with a journalist, broadcaster, activist, legend, Karen Franklin. We chatted to her about all sorts of things. We chatted to her about about feminism in fashion. We talked to her about ooh, people like Terry Richardson and the abuses of power in fashion and what fashion means and should mean and you know, not not tipping tables over and things like that. It was absolutely fascinating and I girl crushed on her so hard. She's fantastic and I think that the interview is so interesting and you're going to have a lovely time if you listen to it. If you like it, if you like this kind of thing, why don't you check out this week's Podzine, which has all sorts of other fascinating, brilliant women on it, like comedian Kate McCabe talking about gun crime in the in the US, and also comedian and co-host of Kate McCabe in the Strong Female Leads podcast, Deborah Jane Appleby, talking about Comic Con, and generally just like excellent, excellent things. Also, while I've got you... If you're listening to this on Sunday and you are in or around that London, we've got a gig on at the Leicester Square Theatre tomorrow night. And because we love you and it's our birthday, yeah, a year, time flies, doesn't it? We are giving you some discounts to tickets. So you can pick up a ticket on the Leicester Square Theatre website. The show is Mickey and Hannah chatting to Vicky McClure, for goodness sake, Marion Keys, who will also be signing books for you at the event, and musician Katie Tunstall is going to be fantastic. And if you use the promotional code SIMAY, S-I-M-A-Y, you will get yourself a £5 discount. Ten friggin' pounds. Yeah, I know, it's it's insane. So, do that and... That's all for me. Enjoy the Sunday chops, guys. Hello. Me and Mickey. Hi. Here she is. Uh, <laughs> are joined by Karen Franklin, journalist, commentator, activist. We're not really joined by Karen, no. has very kindly well, allowed us into yeah. her London home. Thank That's you. True. I we brought um, some, some stuff, a suitcase. I'm living here now. Yeah. <laughs> this is where I live. <laughs> Thank you so much for having us. My pleasure. Yeah. I was looking at your website last night, doing doing a bit of, bit of research. For this. Yes, yeah, research, absolutely. And you've done so much stuff. I almost don't know where to start. There's so much information about various activism that you've been involved with. Where do we start? I guess the big one to start with is fashion. I know you from the clothes show. Yes. So that would be. So that a, takes us right back to 1986. Oh my god! 1986. <laughs> yes. I remember wow. watching it when I was little. All right. But that, <laughs> but that was an education coming from um, a magazine, as I did. I'd been on a magazine for quite a few years before that. But it was a sort of fashion identity politics magazine. It wasn't sort of girly trends. And so I made this graduation from what was essentially quite an underground post-punk magazine to a very overground, you know, the BBC, uh, with massive, massive audiences. And it was really that moment where I fully understood the power and the responsibility of 
of fashion that fashion has and how people bring it into their lives and look at what fashion is saying as though it's coming from a really authoritative taste leadership position on what it is to be a human being. Mm. That's not how you feel about it though, right? (laughs) (laughs) But that's when I started to realise, look, why are we... Because obviously the BVC was quite conventional. And um, by the way, I said no thanks when they asked me, would I be involved in the, in the clothes show? Because I, I thought it just all sounded too conventional. But that's when I started saying, well, we could be doing this and we could be looking at it from this way and we could bring this in. And I often used to, I mean, I threatened to resign all the time. I was there for 12 years and I did resign in the end. Um, And I was forever saying, you've taken the teeth out of it. You know, what I was going to say was this, but you've gone, let's nicey-nice it for everyone. So, I mean, I've got a, a lot of gratitude for that opportunity because I learned so much about life, about my profession, about myself, about others. And there were some amazing women on the team that we kind of colluded together to get stuff through. I mean, one example, I was pregnant in 1992 with my um, first daughter, who's now 25. And uh, I was being filmed as a kind of head or shoulders thing quite often. And I was like, what's the big deal? You know, yeah. I think I'm looking quite notched. There wasn't really n- uh, maternity, maternity wear then, but yeah. I was sort of dressing my entire kind of stomach as though it was a sort of, uh, you know, prize cushion. It was like, you know, <laughs> sort of that was where, the, you know, the, the focus was. And I kept saying, can we just do a head to toe? Why has it got to be like somehow people can only oh, see me? Like a though? Disney film, like babies yeah. are only delivered by oh, stalks. I remember yeah. that. Do you remember in the 90s, I think it was Melanie Blatt's in All Saints. I remember her being on like Top of the Pops and she was pregnant. Nana she... Cherry before that. Oh, right. Nana okay. Cherry did a massive um, kind of dancing. Um, she was quite heavily pregnant. Um, so there, you know, there were those of us who were kind of going, yeah. let's, you know, let's not, pr- let's pretend we don't do this. I remember it being a big thing. I yeah. remember like being a teenager and watching Top of the Pops and it being like, oh, wow, like she's really sort of, putting it out there that she's pregnant she's wearing like a little sort of vest top and whatever and and I remember it was like sort of almost a bit of a jarring image at the time because you just didn't see it yeah you didn't at all I mean mean, mean, I've never been pregnant but I imagine it does get trickier to hide yeah (laughs) well I I would didn't want to to a certain extent so I was using really brightly coloured scarves around my middle with big bows and because there wasn't really now the whole generation of maternity wear design so you know shirts and tops ended and everything had to be done up underneath with safety pins or and then you know you'd have uh, some a sort of big piece of fabric wrap so you know for me that was as much a part of being visible as as a woman with something to say mm. as actually throwing the spotlight on something that was happening around say lack of fair trade or thin models or amazing garments exciting designs top designers you know it was all part of it and interestingly you know the experience i would go on to have would be that the shock of being a single parent and working full time I say that just you know for dramatic impact but you know (laughs) I suddenly sprouted a white streak 
and I was phoned. So in my early thirties, I had a, a white streak, which I really liked. Wicked I, Bride of Frankenstein <laughs> streak—it's amazing. I thought it was a good thing, but I was phoned up from a colleague who said they've just been discussing you in a meeting and how you're looking old, and they're going to wind you down. What sent you to the farm? <laughs> <laughs> But there you go. In my early 30s, as a woman, I was already starting to look too old. So, you know, I obviously did, you know, flip a gesture over the phone (laughs) and I kept my white streak. But what I decided to do was sort of dye the rest of it, um, as time went on, dye the rest of it quite dark so that I had this great contrast. So there was a period where people thought, how do you dye that white streak like that? How do you get it looking so natural? And I'd be like, that is the only natural bit on my head. (laughs) (laughs) For quite a while, I had that two-tone head. And then as I got to my 50s, I kept sort of saying to my hairdresser, can I just grow all this out now? Have I got enough to make a statement? Because it was still very two-tone. And when I said to my business partner, right, I am now going grey in my early 50s. We just need to know that I won't get employed in the same way because we used to do a lot of live events and, you know, we'd rock up and we'd do the thing and I'd get on stage. And, and you know, I, I was correct. <laughs> I, but that, you know, you, you have to engage with the reality of, of stuff. But my business partner wasn't happy, let's say, because I was effectively saying I'm going to now be interfering with our nice little income stream. I find this particularly fascinating because I've been going grey. I think my first grey hair was when I was 16 and I'm very dark haired naturally and so it stands out and I think I'd probably be about 70% grey now. So I have to dye my hair about every two weeks and I just don't feel ready to make that leap. And And, you know, I'm in my 40s so it's not like I'm super young or anything. Yeah, but but the thing is you're smart, you know how it will be perceived Mm. and also you know the brain deals in patterns it hasn't got time to process everything so it looks at grey hair and the the pattern of its understanding is old now I'm all right with that but if you're in a marketplace where you are dependent on people perceiving you as having you know vital modernity then that's not a good move if you're a woman and I often say that to young women who say yeah you know I should be able to go grey um and be in the workplace and and feel safe about how I will be perceived but we all know that life isn't like that in the same way that I've instructed both my daughters to wear Dr Martins at all times especially (laughs) when they're coming home from clubs late because yeah a woman can say I should be able to wear anything I want and walk home from the tube late at night and be safe yeah you should but life isn't like that so you would actually advocate to a younger woman in the industry don't you know no I wouldn't but I would say you know it is about your own authenticity and and what you need in in order to engage with how you want people to read you I can do that from a safe position Mm. of you know maybe coming from an industry in which I'm I'm allowed to be a bit of a maverick being able to use other tools like my clothing that says you needn't read me as a woman months away from 60 and make assumptions about who I am because my clothes will tell you something different 
And also, you know, I'm in a unique position. I'm an independent. I work with a variety of clients. I'm not in a position perhaps where I'm front of house and a boss is looking at me and thinking, is she the right person to send out on behalf of our company? So, you know, going grey has to be a very individual thing done with full knowledge around the politics of identity and, you know, the male gaze and the way it impacts on every woman's life. Now, fashion is supposed to be a celebration of identity. And the one thing I absolutely associate with Karen Franklin is that <laughs> Bride of Frankenstein streak. It was what stood out. But instead of being a celebration of identity, it does sometimes feel like fashion is more used as shackles for women, mm-hmm. particularly for women. Mm-hmm. And you decided to go back to school to sort that out, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've always been very vocal about the unachievable body ideals that fashion promotes. And we began, you know, we did quite a lot of that on the clothes show in the early 90s. And what I saw was models getting taller, but this, you know, the, the uh, sample measurements staying the same. And I was also seeing a kind of global recruitment of... Eastern European women from very poor backgrounds who were willing to do whatever it took to conform to this, uh, you know, this is unkind and damaging sort of body type that designers were using. I think that is a wonderful word, by the way, unkind. Yeah. Yes, mm. it is. It's unkind to, to them and to women and to everyone. Across the board. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I was increasingly asking models about this story and, you know, I was finding out about how what their daily work experience was. And I was just getting increasingly more appalled. And so I began to write about it. I began to, 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 to sort of campaign in a way that you do. I worked with the Eating Disorders Association for many years. I was a patron. And I just felt able to occupy a space. I call myself a disruptive fashion lover. (laughs) I love fashion, but I will call out, you know, what I think needs to be changed. And it's like any reformer. You can't do it if you're outside Mm. with a protest banner. You have to be inside saying, well, what if we did this? And what difference would it make if we went that way forward? So increasingly, I began to talk about it you know I've always worked in education so I began to talk about it a lot to my students and create initiatives in which I would kind of empower them if you like to take a different position but it wasn't until 2009 that I thought this just needs something way way bigger so I got together with some industry friends Erin O'Connor and Deborah Bourne and we created All Walks Beyond the Catwalk and we worked with really high-end people across the board with high production values to make a big noise about the importance of diversity and inclusivity and it was at that point that I began to think we're coming from the heart and the you know the gut the instinct but I need more because I'm often talking to sort of CEOs who don't realise that they're operating with this dominant culture masculinity perspective and I've got to crack through this and anger isn't going to do it you know and coercing isn't going to do it I've got to go and study I did a master of science in psychology um, in order to leverage the correct information so instead of wanting to just like smash the room up (laughs) when I'm in there I can actually just go well studies show 
and mm. it's it's actually been really good for my mental health to yeah. be able to do that and the tables haven't been tipped quite as often yeah. there's been less tidying up to do when I've <laughs> left you know the place I was watching a documentary the other week about um, Alexander McQueen mm-hmm. uh, which you're in actually uh, very briefly there's a clip of you I guess on the clove show or something at uh, an Alexander McQueen show fashion really is about art and expression is the fashion industry unkind to us or are we misinterpreting what it's supposed to be about what the fashion industry don't all get together in a room and go let's make women feel like shit of oh course. come on yes they do you can tell us <laughs> <laughs> of course, partly yeah. because it's very disjointed lots mm. of designers don't know each other you know it's not a big industry where they all hang out they know each other you know because they're in the same industry there's no overarching human resources kind of organization there's no independent regulatory body there's there's no one that will really go come on guys can we just shape it this way or can we shape it that way what there is when people engage organizations or individuals and you have you know an agenda and the will to drive that agenda through is you can engage with with people and make tremendous things happen an incredible example of that is fashion targets breast cancer which i've been co-chair of since 96 with amanda wakeley and what we did by using all of the fashion industry from Vogue to the whole modelling industry to all the designers was take a message forward of early presentation saves lives. Breast awareness is a vital part of your kind of sort of understanding of health and and also took away the taboo around talking about breast awareness and breast health. So I have seen the generosity and, you know, just the amazing power that fashion has when it gets behind a cause. Mm. And that's what we wanted to do when we started up All Walks Beyond the Catwalk, was actually say, look, what about if you thought about it like this and did it this way? And it became increasingly aware that although designers as individuals understood what we were doing and I think you know we've seen a ripple of change in the last few years because people have begun to get on board you have to go to grassroots level through education and make sure all the education um, is producing conscious designers in the first place so they're going out and enacting a shift that seems perfectly normal to them instead of them running a business and going "Mm, how do we turn this tank around how do we start engaging with this in a different way so I'm a a huge believer in sort of grassroots activism for that very reason and also you can't it doesn't matter how big or noble or amazing your campaign is usually it's underfunded and unwaged and you're on your knees working 18 hours a day you've got to pass the baton on um, to as many people as you can and things will be what they will be But I'm coming from a position of being so thrilled in the 70s as a teenager, seeing, um, you know, various kind of uh, feminist scholars on News at 10, you know, again, kind of metaphorically chucking the table up in Uh the air and, you know, smashing the room up. But obviously in a kind of scholarly way and thinking, that's it, it's sorted, amazing, it's going to change, you know. And actually, you know, kind of we make a mistake if we think that no matter how successful the thing that you've said or done is at that moment in time, 
it's got to you've got to plant seeds that keep on growing and that you know that those people then push seeds out that keep on growing the status quo has been the the status quo for so long it isn't just going to change in one movement and you said that you think you've seen ripples of change what do you think the biggest changes are that you've seen well, that say people like Edward Enifal, who yeah. has now you know made it to vogue a position of power, has felt safe to be vocal about the need for more racial diversity and size diversity. That conversation would not have got that far, let's say fifteen years ago. That we're seeing Black Panther, you know, mm. smash it uh-huh. in the box office because, and that is not just because of black communities supporting it that's white communities being excited about this kind of narrative and this beauty and visibility oh, yeah and the women shown. in it as well you know all of the women you haven't Massive. seen it yet yeah, no. but yeah oh my God. there's so many women in it it's incredible really it's, it's it's an amazing piece of you know conscious writing and movie making that you just cannot help but be thrilled mm. by it and i can't wait for the sequel so yeah the things are changing and also we've got social media now which allows for really positive baton passing and you can get to a tipping point more easily hence the harvey weinstein conversation I was going to ask you actually about social media and influencers. There's a lot of bloggers and of course they're not models so you do get more diversity there. So do yeah. you think the age of social media and the ease that people can communicate with each other is making a difference as well? It's an amazing tool and it's like anything. You know, a car could be taking children to school and taking someone to hospital but it could also be driven irresponsibly and, you know, crashed into a house or whatever. Social media is the same. It is an amazing tool for empowering people and passing uh, information on and suddenly, you know, women gathering sort of around something and going, great, I didn't know that was out there being thought of in this way and that meeting, you say, and that activity and that campaign. So I'm thrilled about that because I don't think we could have got to the point where we are now beginning to talk about toxic masculinity. And there are many other masculinities, let's make that clear, that Mm -hmm. are not toxic, that have been marginalised by dominant culture masculinity. So, But for this conversation to take place, there have to be a lot of voices pushing it forward. And I'm really excited by the amount of men on social media that are, are able to say rape isn't or shouldn't be a woman's problem. It's our problem mm. to, you know, take forward and begin to look at. And so, you know, certainly again, you know, I've got two daughters. That's been a conversation that we've had from the off about who are you following and why? Who's coming into your world and what are they talking to you about? And why do they have currency? You know, what is it about them? So coming back to, say, you know, bloggers and, you know, influencers, let's say, you know, whatever we might think... And there's a whole program there, isn't there, about Kim Kardashian. Um, (laughs) She has, I think, helped push an understanding out into high fashion that different body shapes are required. Because, you know, I know personal stylists who 
are now being given massive budgets to go to the shows and to then go backstage and go, okay, so you've shown me it on an emaciated teenager, but my client mm. now wants this made up in a UK size 16, 18. You know, she's five foot four and here's all her money. So let's get on with it, shall we? And as uh, fashion shows are being questioned as a vehicle, you had people like Christopher Bailey from Burberry saying, we're going to sell directly off the show. And that, to me, heralds a need for different thinking because people can't begin to imagine things on themselves if they're not being shown a spectrum of body shape and age and image. So someone who is is really kind of rocking a big audience has enormous power to change kim kardashian you know has has bought a huge amount of money to say shibonshi because she's wearing their collection and she's showing other women how to wear it because teenage very thin tall teenage models don't actually do that oh, do you think fast fashion is making high-end fashion change the way it works as well because seasons are becoming less of a thing mm. uh, fast fashion obviously has massive problems with sustainability yeah. and the environment but it is also aimed at people who can afford to go and buy it and will be a lot more diverse than the people who go to high-end fashion shows well uh, let's just bring in that aspect of self-styling and curating your own image which is what we all did in the 80s sorry to go back to you know <laughs> <laughs> but there was no such thing as the high street. No. You may or may not know or remember. And so what you did was you took something and then you you did some sewing, you did some customising, you did some vintage. You created your own look based on sort of aspirational imagery around you. But you didn't buy it wholesale. So you weren't sort of directly linked to the product maker in the way that many people now are and so I was excited about the idea of democratizing fashion when the high street began to employ young designers and say listen instead of producing a <clears throat> hundred for your show and your limited group of, of specialized clients why not produce 25,000 for us and, you know, you can still create something that's quite special with top quality fabric because our buying power is going to be so much more. But we can put it out at this price. So there was, a, there was I think, some really sensible thinking going on there. And designers were able to make distinctions and create different things. And everybody could access it at their own price point. But then, you know, it, it kind of speeded up with technology. All the manufacturing left the UK and went to China. Massive, massive mass production, you know, moving into uh, millions. And uh, and also, uh, you know, a much faster turnover. And therein lies the story of massive exploitation as well. And the customer thinking that the company would be behaving in an honourable way because they wanted them to. Yeah. Mm. And expecting that there would be some sort of self-regulation. But what we know is, as human beings, that where profits involve, self-regulation doesn't no. you know, stay as a focus, whatever it is. Yeah. And we've seen that also in um, you know, the modelling industry and fashion and the way that... you know. 
predatory photographers are being exposed. I wanted to ask you about that. (laughs) Because you've written quite a lot about Terry Richardson, for example. You must be desperate for some laughs, though, by now, mustn't you? No, no, no. This is fascinating. (laughs) No, I just wondered about, obviously, in fashion... There's a lot of chat about, you know, the the likes of Terry Richardson photographers, I guess, people in all sorts of areas of fashion, and there are lots of quite young girls, teenagers, working in that environment. Is fashion an easy place for maybe someone who you would describe as predatory, like Terry Richardson? Is it an easy place for those people to exist, or is it really just a continuation of something that is just endemic in society? Well, both, but it's possibly the easiest place for a predator to hide because there is a a protocol where a very young woman goes into an environment and is instructed to behave in a sexualised way um, and to be wearing clothing that is often quite exposing and everybody in the, at the room in that point thinks that's completely normal because that's what fashion does. And so, you know, I would say someone like Terry Richardson actually groomed all of the young people who worked for him to accept that as normal and facilitate it. So nobody felt able to be in a situation going, this, this seems unreasonable what you're doing, mate personally I don't stand for this and I don't want to work for you they all facilitated it and so did the fashion industry who felt that you know he was someone who was pushing out their edgy work fashion loves to hide behind that word you know really close up to the edge when in fact he'd overstepped a line and was moving in a space that was distinctly exploitative male gaze objectifying women But the fashion industry is not full of politicised people. It it attracts a different type of sensibility. And so, you know, there there weren't people who felt strong enough or able enough to find that level of objectifying, you know, hugely wrong. So someone like me, who I wasn't working in high fashion, and it was brought to my attention by students when I was giving lectures, and they were saying, but, you know, this is what we found, this is what he's doing. And I was you know very late in the day deeply shocked and started to well I wrote about it immediately um but wasn't allowed to mention his name and sort of took it forward into tabloids took it forward to channel 4 news but to a certain extent was gagged by a lawyer you know and all around was hearing well you know you're a bit naive I mean that's always gone on and I'm like not on my watch you know I've never been part of something where that's but it did make me question what I'd learned and what I'd seen and how you know in the early days of course there were certain things that I'd accepted as a young very young um, woman sort of operating in a space in which I kind of looked up to people you know and there were certain photographers that I'd had unpleasant experiences with not necessarily of a sexual nature but I hadn't known how to object I didn't have the tools just like "Mm, that doesn't feel right I don't really want to work with that person I don't like the way they behave and obviously as you get older you get more sort of confident and that is the fantastic thing about 
age that you become much clearer about what you will and won't put up with not just for yourself but on behalf of other people as well so I saw you know talking about tipping point the conversation around Harvey Weinstein as a chance to begin talking about it again and this time I took it to a woman editor who through shared conversations I knew she, I wouldn't have to kind of manage what I was saying I could just say it you know mm -hmm. just yeah. name it and so that obviously then began a big round aided by social media of conversation and expose the industry wasn't super keen to let go of him quickly though no it, it was still a bit of a struggle you know the, I sure. think the phrase hiding in plain sight for Uncle yeah. Terry I mean yeah it was so obvious, but they were still like, oh, but like that, that word yeah. edgy was yeah. still being reeled out as why they should, you know, it was a bit different. And but maybe... I think that really indicates how acculturated everyone is into male gaze mm -hmm. to accept that women should be objectified in that way and exploited in that way. And that young models just are supposed to do as they're told. And, you know, also you look at the leadership in fashion and you think, well, these people were being told that this was going on but they chose not to rock the boat because they were sitting pretty and power does corrupt so we've all got to look at, you know we look at ourselves and think so if I were in that position what would I have done and we like to think I would have called it and there are many people who, who might have done and who could have been capable of that. But leaders get to that place quite often because they play the game, not because they go into a room and tip the table up. Oh, go, yeah. I'm not putting up with this. They've got mm. very canny at climbing the greasy pole. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. You know, so it's, it's an interesting culture, isn't it? And one of the things that was just, for me, simply liberating that I had to kind of learn through doing psychology was that there are you know a psychology calls it an informational cascade which is conformist thinking or a trend in thinking and that for me I got this instant picture of a disruptor of when you disrupt that cascade of information you actually stand up against you know and the you know the the waterfall or you know goes everywhere but you mm. create a space behind you in which other people feel safe to go well I was thinking that mm -hmm. I just didn't like to say or didn't want to be the first one to say and so it it kind of gave me a space in which I thought it is okay to be gobby so I'm going to spend <laughs> now the rest of my time being gobby on my terms um, and playing a different type of game if you like so I've kind of moved perhaps more forcibly into academia and uh, created a professorial post for myself I went in and asked for it <laughs> well done <laughs> this is the role at Kingston yes. University I was invited in to take another academic role which I funnily enough discussed with Rosie my 18 year old and just went it's just not me I'm just not you know I'm going to have to be sort of immersed more into academic culture but what I'd really like to do is talk about this and so it's diversity and inclusivity. And that isn't just about portrayal, that's about perspective. 
So I am very pro-quotas. You cannot enact change unless you've got diverse perspectives pushing that change forward. So, you know, for an all-white sort of right-wing, hetero, cisgender team to be saying, yes, yes, we must think about recruiting more diversity, it ain't going to work unless you've got these perspectives immersed in the thinking in the first place. Mm. So I just see it really as my job to be kind of as as vocal as I can and as proactive as I can and that can be as simple as saying yeah I'd love to do your panel who am I talking with and could I humbly suggest that actually there isn't enough diversity I'm happy to step down but I think you know going forward and you put somebody in my place who can bring a different perspective to this because otherwise we're simply just talking about it but we're not creating mm-hmm. process for change it's yeah. funny isn't it going back to back to black panther briefly i um i have boxing lessons and i was chatting nice. to my uh, i was chatting to my <laughs> boxing trainer who's uh, is a black man about black panther and he was saying one of the things that really struck him about it was the representations of women in it he said it wasn't like representations of what white people think black people find attractive. Absolutely. It was like actually, you know, yeah. what black people find attractive. And it was really... And we, like, basically, me, me and Linvel have little uh, intersectionality chats every Wednesday. <laughs> and I was sort of saying to him, yeah, that's because the people making the decisions are all white men. <laughs> like that's, so yeah. everything we see... Yeah. is through the white male gaze, yeah. basically. Advertising, films, Absolutely. music videos, blah. I think it was interesting what you said earlier about um, the breast cancer awareness campaign. And, and for such a long time, boobs, tits, were something to be stared at yeah. and objectified rather than, you know, adverts were banned and photos were banned where women were checking their breasts for lumps because it wasn't deemed appropriate yeah, on billboards you mm. have women in bikinis because it's all about the male gaze. Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting space. I mean, point in case being the Beach Body Ready campaign. Mm. And, you know, that was something we know raised huge sort of female hackles. I loved all the... That's always in my lectures to students and I've, I've got one, you know, that has the, um, the image and then it's got, fuck off, <laughs> it's all over it. <laughs> You know, somebody had to cross a train track to make that <laughs> image. I love it. But, you know, engaged with the Advertising Standards Authority about that. And, you know, there were hundreds and hundreds of complaints. But because it was deemed to conform to accepted standards, it wasn't upheld, much to the rage of Saul. But as a result of the complaints, we all went in and, you know, put our case for why... Because my first question, and whose standards are those? Because they're certainly not women's standards. And there's been a huge kind of turnaround inquiry um, with lots of evidence that Jess Phillips presented, um, I think, last year at Parliament at new advertising standards protocol going forward, that it is now the perspectives of those in the ads that will be taken on board because women should have been able to say this is outrageous yeah um but you know so we're 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 still needing to make those all the time and what, what often i say to women is the advertising standards authority will investigate one complaint you don't need to amass a hundred so they will have a look because they need to have an opinion on it so we have huge power as individuals 
to, to to go and say I'm not happy with that or even to just say in a room well, I tell all my students you know when you think about the informational cascades as a disruptor to just say I don't know that doesn't feel right to me and that simple space of you know stopping that flow of information allows for other people to go I was thinking that too but I don't know I thought I just thought I could I didn't have the space or the right to say it and I think that's where women have huge power is actually channeling that gut instinct so that it doesn't have to be a big righteous declaration it is it can be a, a small energy where you just say doesn't feel right I don't feel right about it am I the only one and that space in itself gathers and that's what women do so well on social networking mm-hmm. and that's why I'm so thrilled about it as a really pro-social tool Love it. <laughs> I wish I'd had it back in the day. Okay. I think um, we could chat to you for days. Yeah. You're absolutely yeah. fascinating. But I've got one last question. What should we be being most gobby about then, in your opinion? <laughs> Do you know what? I think every woman has her own stuff. And you ultimately, different things mean different things to different people. You can't go into a situation, let's just say fashion, and look at all the wrongs and be across all of it and take it forward for change. And that's also what I say to my students is it has to be the thing that means something to you for whatever reason, your childhood, your experiences. And that's the thing that you will be, find most easy to challenge. The power in the personal. Yeah, your antenna, your in, antenna is up already. So it's not an effort to go I just need to think about this is it right how do I feel about this because you already know how you feel so I would always just say pick something and then decide that you're gonna take it forward as a shift you can't change the world you can't and you can't change people but you can navigate a way forward as a shift and that's the that's the excitement of it is women are really beginning to all marginalized communities are beginning to use social networking to take that shift forward Karen it's probably a bit uh, early in our relationship to say this but I'd quite like you to adopt me (laughs) I've moved in Jen I've got the room at the back I'll fight you for it Um, well, I, I'm I'm thrilled to get the chance to chat, really, because obviously, as you can now tell, I can really go off on that. Thank you. <laughs> Standard issue for all women.